Let it be said in this house that this is the book for which you test all things to be true or false. Having said that, don't just believe what I say. Search this book. Check everything I say, whether it's a yea or a nay, by this book. Having said that, let's read our text. Again, we pick it up at verse 29. We are right now at the point of what we would call the Exodus. And it says this, And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne on the, um, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all of the Egypt, and there was not a house where there was not one dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. And also take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We... And notice, do you see the italics, the words in italics? If a word's in italics, what that means is it's not in the original... It's just there to help you understand it. But I like it without it because what it says is, we be dead. That's what it says. Look at it. We all dead. Or we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up on their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. And they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. And thus they plundered the Egyptians. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds and a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough in which they brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is the night of the Lord, a solemn observance of the children of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. But every man's servant who was bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover, the Lord let all his males be circumcised. And then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. One law shall be given for the native-born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. Will you pray with me, please? God, I just pray for your word to come alive, to burst open and grab a hold of us by the throats and hearts today and by the minds that we could understand, that we could grasp, that we could feel what you would want us to feel, that we would see what you want us to see, that we would hear what you want us to hear, that you would perform the therapy on each of us individually where we need to be performed, have that performed today. God, I pray that you would minister that you would speak, that you would today, God, speak to each of us individually, but also, Lord, minister to us as a family, as a group of people who have been bought by the blood of your Son, Jesus the Christ. And God, I just pray that you would today make this make more sense than ever before. Let this God reach in and really become colorful as your word is active and alive, sharper than a double-edged sword. So God then cut today. Cut through the lies, the misconceptions. We see ourselves, we see others. And God, today, please, freshly anoint me. Get me out of your way, Lord. Let me become transparent that you today 
would profoundly teach. And in profoundly teaching, God, please today, minister, that we would have so much fun learning of you and your word. So redeem every second, we pray. So we commit it to you and ourselves. Lord, bring us to the cross. And may we leave here so encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, don't just believe me. Search the scriptures. Now, now if you're new to this, if you kind of jumped into this right in the middle of it, this is a pretty rough place to jump in, if you think about it, because you're coming in at a place where a bunch of people die, and you think, oh, God of love, God of love, everyone's dead. Huh, uh, how does that work? Now, you need to recognize that in the heart of the Father, from the very beginning of this, in the heart of the Father has been His Son. You see, from the very beginning of this, when the people for 400 years were slaves. Now, they have been there, as God tells us here, 430 years. But I remind you, back in the book of Genesis, when 70 people came into the land, they came into the land not as slaves, but as welcome guests. You see, there was a young boy that had been sold as a slave into the land of Israel. Sold as a slave, think that, into the land, I'm sorry, of Egypt. And as he'd been sold there, God had given him favor. First with his master, the person who was, in essence, his boss, until his wife, who, by the way, also seemed to have granted great favor to Joseph, tried to get him to lay with her. When he refused, she cried rape. And as a result of that, the husband, by the way, who happened to be Pharaoh's bodyguard, should have had him executed, and by the way, had all means and purposes to do so. The fact that Joseph wasn't executed tells me two things. One is, is that God certainly was looking out for Joseph. But the second is, is that it appears to me as if this bodyguard kind of knew that his wife was a cougar. Anyways, with that in mind, Joseph is still put in prison because Potiphar, this man, can't just set the guy free and then still live with his wife. So he sends him to, to prison. And there he has favor then with the, with the people who are there and spends time there. Ultimately, through that situation, Joseph, it will become clear that he can interpret dreams. And not every person can do this. And it's not like he's an astrologer or he's you know, shaking bones or lifting up cards and seeing what it is. This is something God is personally speaking to him. And as that is the case, Pharaoh, the man in charge, the king has a couple dreams. And in those dreams, this boy is brought out of prison to help with these dreams because they're really troubling him. Now, I don't know about you, but if you had a dream of a bunch of skinny cows eating a bunch of fat cows, I don't know if that would leave you in a sweat. But for a guy that was in charge, by the way, I remind you, Pharaoh was in charge of all the agriculture, that would be a rough thing for him. You know, seven ears of corn that were nice, eaten by seven nasty ears of corn. Maybe not that big of a deal to you, unless you were the person that all of England looked to as responsible for the corn harvest. Well, then you might actually find it a little bit more personal and scary. So when Joseph is brought up, he says, well, the two dreams, basically, because by the mouth of more than one witness, the matter is established. God gave you two to establish the matter, and here it is. There are going to be seven years of plenty. That's the seven fat cows. That's the seven fat ears of corn. But then after that, there'll be seven years of such great famine that it'll be as if there was never plenty in this land before that point. And he could have stopped with that because that was the interpretation. But then he exercises, as the scripture calls, a word of wisdom. Which, by the way, please understand, wisdom according to scripture is not you sounding smart. Wisdom is proper application of knowledge. That's all it is. You take a screwdriver and you pick it up and you bang Peter in the head with it. We'll call that unwise for two reasons. One is, is that Peter's kind of a big guy, and that's kind of dumb. The second is, it's not what the screwdriver is intended for. If you take that and you screw in a screw with it, that's wisdom. That's proper application of the knowledge. Well, in the same way, Joseph then takes that knowledge and he properly applies it. He says, so this is what I recommend. And I remind you, this guy's just yanked out of prison. He's just gotten shaved up. I mean, this guy has been covered in here for a couple years now. And this is the first moment where he's actually able to touch his face. And now in that, he comes over and he's talking to the guy that's supposed to be the most powerful man on earth, so to speak. And he actually is giving him advice. Think about how cheeky that is. And he says, so here's my advice. Since there's seven years of plenty, my recommendation is pull 20% off of it. So we'll let everyone get their food, but then pull 20% off of it. And as you do, store it up. So that when the years happen where there's famine, bada boom, bada bing, you got grain. Now that's a loose paraphrase, but you get the idea. So with that, Pharaoh says, was there anyone in the kingdom with such a man, with such wisdom or such a, the, the, the spirit of God as this man has? Because he says, well, I recommend you get somebody you can trust to actually watch that because 
The guy's going to be pretty powerful. And Pharaoh says, you seem like the guy. And this guy that was in prison one moment, woke up as a prisoner, goes to sleep that day in a king's house as the second in command. Now everybody's starving to except this guy. And he is, and I remind you, he's the one Jewish guy in an entire Gentile world. Betrayed by his brothers, sold as the price of a slave, assumed dead. And this one boy, that's a Jewish boy, is raised up to save first the Gentile world around him. And then ultimately, once reconciled to his Jewish family, will save them as well. And who's, that, who's in the sight of God as this story is being written? His son. Because it's the same thing that happens with Jesus, friends. Jesus sold by his brothers, his own. It says in John 1, he came to those that were his own, but his own would not receive him. But for those who received him, he gave him a right to become children of God. Oh, not born by the flesh or by the born of the will of man, but by God. By the Spirit of God that such people would be born. Now listen. With that now, Joseph is reconciled with his brothers. This is a very short paraphrase of 20 chapters of Genesis. And then with that, they come and he says, well, the only place where there's grain is here. Why don't you guys come? And the best land that we have is Goshen. It's the one, it's the richest land even in a famine. And since you guys are shepherds and Egyptians hate shepherds, you guys should probably stay there. And so guess what happens? The 70 people that remain of his family move down to Egypt and there they are. And for 30 years, it seems like things are really good. Now Goshen's a rich land. So after the famine, everything starts to, re, you know, sort of, the agriculture starts to replenish. And with that, of course, Goshen is great land for shepherds. And then after 30 years, what happens is there's a pharaoh that comes in. And he's not of the same breed as the pharaoh before this point. The pharaoh before the point would have been Sephardic. In other words, he was a shepherd king. Interesting. And then all of a sudden, and by the way, he wasn't Egyptian. Now an Egyptian takes over as pharaoh. And at that point, he refuses to acknowledge any laws passed by the previous pharaoh. And by the way, in this country, that actually sort of makes sense. That happens here. And so with that, he, by the way, the way that means Joseph is no longer anything. That means that these Jewish people are no longer anything. And then for the next 400 years, they become slaves. 400 years. All you knew was bondage. 400 years. But God had already promised well before that that he was going to bring him into the land and that that was not theirs. They would be they would be servants or slaves there. And then in the fourth generation, you'd bring them out with great riches. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. So he raises up a man named Moshe, by the way, who's, by the way, the fourth generation of Levi, the tribe of Levi. And with that, this man, Moshe, means drawn out, raised originally in the palace of the king, uh, and then, but ultimately refuses that, sees himself as the Hebrew and not as the Egyptian. And through a series of events, now is brought back to Egypt with the purpose of seeing the people released. His first thing he says, by the way, is, look, if you don't want to listen, that's up to you. But if you don't listen, regardless, God is still going to release these people and he's going to kill your firstborn. God says, Israel's my firstborn and it's firstborn for firstborn. My firstborn's going free or your firstborn's going down. Loose paraphrase, but read it on your own. That's, that's Exodus 3 and 4. Pharaoh says, and I kind of see more coming from Chicago, Chicago region. I'm like, well, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Who is he that I should obey him? And God says, you really want to see who I am? Okay, I'll show you who I am. And the term he uses, who is the Lord? And that's important. And the reason is, the Lord means the boss. That's what the Lord means. And that's the funny thing, by the way, of any of us, that when we try to say that Jesus is Lord, but don't live like it. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? How could you say boss, boss, and then not let him be it? You know, and Jesus, and it's like Peter, such a classic example, because you'll say, no, Lord, how do you do that? No, but you're the boss. No, you're not. Now look at, with all of that, what God has done then from chapters 4 basically now through to this point is he has systematically taken down every single thing that Egypt worships. Last of which, by the way, is Pharaoh. And with that, the purpose is, and please hear me, God made that actually very clear in chapter 6, that he wants to make sure that, that the Egyptians know that he's the Lord too. Remember, Pharaoh said, who was the Lord? And, and God says, you really want to know? I'll show you. And the reason is, is that God could have, I mean, think about it. He could have just killed all the Egyptians and then said, all right, boys, take everything and leave. But he didn't. And the reason is because he loves them too. And he has that habit of that. Those of you who are familiar with the story of Eliyahu or Elijah against the prophets of Baal, remember that where he sets up his, you know, this is in 1 Kings, he sets up his altar and the prophets of Baal are setting up their altar. Now God could have just sent fire down and killed all the prophets of Baal. 
but he didn't. Because he wanted to make sure that they knew he was the Lord too. So now things have gone down to this. And I remind you, in God's eyes, from the beginning of this, is his son. So from the beginning of this, though all of these other things are going to go down, it's the firstborn that this thing is going to bring freedom. And the reason is because it's the firstborn that's going to bring freedom for us. And the sight of the father has always been his son. And might I just say, and the sight of the son has always been you. Well, that's the point. It says in the book of Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Do you know what that means? That Jesus had something in front of him that was so important to him that everything else that he did, all the sacrifice that was necessary, was going to be okay because of this thing. Think of an Olympic athlete. Let's just say Franco here. Franco here is, 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 is actually, he's working out, he's sacrificing because he's going to be in the 216 Olympics. Can, you can see it, right? You can see it? Right? No, he, yeah, you can't. Okay. And he is, and he's, and he's, and he's, he's working out, and he's, you know, it's like every day, and what he does is he puts a picture up on the wall of a gold medal, and then he, you know, he has someone that he knows that's really gifted draw him into the medal, you know, and there he is standing there like this, and so every day he's working out, and he's, he's exercising, and he's running, and he's, he's working, he's lifting weights and everything, and all he's got in his head is this thing, I gotta, I gotta get that medal, baby, I gotta get that medal, baby, I gotta get that medal, you know, however he would say it, but you get the idea, because that was the things set before him that was so important. There was a day when Andrew walked by and he saw this girl. And that girl set before him was so much he did crazy things. Like he took out his wallet and he bought stuff. And, and he gave up his time and he started pursuing because the joy that was set before him was Deborah. And boy, and you know what? The things he would do. And now he's like looking and he's making sure his teeth is all shiny. And he's got, you know, he's just, he, you know, it's like, you know, he, he, guys do strange things when that joy is set before him. Like for some of us, we comb our hair. I mean, it's strange things. We bathe more. We actually smell things like colognes. It's like, whoa, does anyone buy this? You know, and it's like, oh, I could smell good in this. And that, you know, and it's like, we would never think of doing this around the guys because that would be weird. And I just want you to know, according to Hebrews, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now, if you think that the gold medal is important, and with that then, you know, you get up, he's getting up at three to run, and you go, oh, he's getting up at three to run, do I really have to get that medal? I'm going to get that medal. That's the thing that got him up. For him to run that extra 16 laps, when his whole body says, are you a fool or what? And he's like, no, no, go medal. Gold medal, gold medal. I hit the wall. Gold medal, gold medal. Gold medal, gold medal. And it's like, but for Jesus, hanging on a cross here, this is God. And you have people down there saying, oh, you really think you're hot stuff? You really think you're Messiah? Come down off the cross. Now, first of all, I want you to know you should thank the Lord I'm not Jesus. Because if I were Jesus, I would have come down off the cross. I would have gone, bam! Then I would have got back up. But it would have been too late by that point. You know? When they blindfolded and said, tell me who hit you now? I said, first of all, your name's Brutus. Let me tell you the most embarrassing moment you've ever experienced in your life. By the way, listen to these. And then after that, I'd say, hit me again and watch what happens to your hand. I mean, you should be thankful. But to be, to be honest, that's because the thing set before me is me. But not Jesus. Set before Jesus in his sight the whole time is you. From the moment when the enemy said, bow down to me and I'll give you the kingdom. And he said, no. Because it's written, you shall worship the Lord only. Him alone shall you serve. The reason he didn't cower wasn't because he didn't want it. It was because you were set before him. In the moment when Judas kisses him and he offers himself to be arrested and they beat him, you were set before him. And when they robbed him of all that justice and he could have called the whole thing out, the reason he didn't is because you were set before him. So in our text, I just want you to know, when the sight of the Father is his Son through all of this text, but the sight of the Son is always you. To this day, Jesus is, if he were not who he is, he would be the scariest stalker that ever existed. Because according to David, his thoughts for you, if they're anything like him, outnumber the sand on the shore. Now, I lived by a beach for quite a while, and I can tell you, there are, there are not, eternity would be enough time and only eternity to count out that many thoughts. And the reason I say that is that God is, is obsessed with you. And I'm so thankful. In our text, now look at what it says. 
God has already said this is what's going to happen. You need to take the blood. And remember last week we talked about it. it had to be the blood. It had to be the lamb. It had to be your lamb. And it says in verse 29, It came upon at midnight that the Lord struck the firstborn. And as the Lord struck the firstborn, it hit everyone in Egypt. And by the way, there was one way out of it, and that was to partake of the lamb that has to be your lamb, and that blood has to cover your house. There was no other option. It doesn't say that you could use a cow. It doesn't say if you were a vegetarian, you could put a little bit of asparagus juice. God says, this is your one option. And look at it. If you recognize that you deserve God's wrath, one option is more than you deserve. And the same with me. Now, you can decide for yourself how delusional you want to be, but this one I'm completely lucid in. I deserve hell. 100%, 200 proof, undiluted with no chaser, hell. But by God's perfect love, mercy, and grace, he sent his son to die on the cross. So I didn't have to go. Now look at, listen, listen, listen. God gave me the option of being set free from my own guilt. He gave me the option of innocence. He offered me freedom at his expense. And I want to tell God I'd rather earn it when I've already earned hell. How insulting would that be to a God who had his son tortured to set us free? Well, here, everybody's hit. And it tells us that, by the way, from the one who sat on the throne to the one in the dungeon. It doesn't matter. The wrath is going to be the same. In verse 30, it says that Pharaoh rose at night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house that there was not one dead. Now notice here, by the way, the problem with what seems to be surrender but isn't. And we're going to see this with a lot of people. And I pray it's not you, but it could be. And you need to check yourself, as I've sought to check myself and continue to. Because there are times where we've watched with Pharaoh where it almost looks like he's giving up, but he doesn't. And have you ever had anyone like that? You love them and you really want to see them surrender to the Lord and they look like it for a moment, but then they're back to where they were just after that? We call that a foxhole confession. It's the moment when something really bad is happening. So they cry out to the Lord and things look good. And then somehow after all of that, they're just back in the scene where they were before, waiting for the next cliff to cry out on. Pharaoh says, he rose at night, verse 30, says, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, there was a great cry in Egypt. In verse 31 he says, and he called for Moses and Aaron by night. So he didn't waste any time. And he says, and look at what Pharaoh says. Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Pharaoh may be willing to admit that this God that the Egyptians, I'm sorry, that the Israelites serve is the Lord, the boss. But did you notice there's still a key word in this? And the word is my. Did you see it? Remember in the beginning of this, Moses started by going to the Pharaoh and saying, Let my people go, says the Lord. These aren't your people, Pharaoh. They're mine. Let them go. And with that, Pharaoh said, well, who's the Lord? Because in Pharaoh's eyes, those Israelis weren't even people. They were just slaves. They weren't even anything but a possession. This, the price of a dog. And with that, God wants to make clear, those aren't dogs. Those aren't just creatures. Those are people with feelings, with dreams, with values, with hopes. With emotions. But Pharaoh here still, at this point, when it looks like he's seceding, and we'll see in a moment the real object, the, the confession of defeat, still says, get them from my people. Did you see that? Can I just say something? And please, please hear me out. There is a big danger when you use that word when you go to God. And I'll tell you why. Because the moment you actually surrender to Jesus as Lord, I'm not talking about a Savior. Who wouldn't want Jesus as Savior? I mean, what that means is he's sort of a get-out-of-hell-free card. Who wouldn't want that? The moment you actually let Jesus be Lord, you lose the word my except for one thing. And this becomes the problem. And I'm going to go straight. I'm going to go right for the throat on this. 
It's not your life. It's not your dreams. It's not your values. It's His now. That's what you surrendered to Him. This becomes the problem, by the way. Anytime you've built your identity from anything, and then you try to actually get Jesus to be put in the mix like He's the croutons on your salad, when He's intended to become the whole new main course, He's the sun that you're supposed to revolve around, not the moon that revolves around you. So, this becomes a problem, for instance, if you say, I'm gay. And God is going to love me the way I am. He's going to save me the way I am. But God says, but that's still your life now, isn't it? You're not going to let me reinvent you. I could say, well, I was raised violent. But at least the one thing I knew is that God had to change that. I mean, the difference is I knew that hurt people. But I'm a dancer, but I'm a musician, but I'm an athlete, but I'm this. Look at, I'm not telling you God won't give you those things, but the difference is when he becomes the center of the universe, everything changes. By the way, it always gets better. I don't know if you've learned that yet. But the difference is if it's, it's all his, he's willing, you, he gives it to you at his timing, the way he wants to for his purposes, not yours now. You don't get validated by it anymore. You're not important by it anymore. And that becomes the danger in any of that stuff. I mean, what would the person who still thinks that if they could just shred a little quicker on guitar, sing a little bit better, dance a little hotter or whatever, and that will make them important? When Jesus died on a cross because you were that special, how could anything be more, make you more important than that? And you say, well, that's my life. You don't understand. If it's my life, look at, if you're saying it's my life, look at, if you, listen, listen, if you say it's mine, then you're not saying he's Lord is, what you're, is what's happening. Let's be honest. It's like, Jesus, you could have everything but my lifestyle, but my values, but my dreams, but my what? My friends? Who are you surrendering this to? To the one who knows you better, loves you more? Believe it or not, he loves you more than you love you. And he even knows what's better for you than you do. And I'm hearing this too, friends. I am. And let me tell you, the moment you're like, God, don't touch my what? God's like, oh, I'm sorry. When did it become yours again? Because according to Scripture, we've become what's called bondservants of Christ. And a bondservant's a slave. And God chose that term, and it should be insulting and humbling. And the reason is because slaves don't have rights. We don't form unions and, say, and go to the master and say, excuse me, but let me just tell you what. We've decided we want to get up later. We decided we want to work less hours and six coffee breaks. And they're all Starbucks and I want a latte. And the guy's got a whip. He's got, let me show you a latte. I'm going to whip you a latte. Wah! Here's some froth. Wah! Because after all, slaves don't have rights. And God did it on purpose. Let me ask you something. Are you really, really trying? And be honest, because I'll be honest with you. Everything inside my flesh wants Jesus to be Savior, but me to be Lord. But it doesn't say if we're willing to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and confess Jesus as Savior. Listen to that again. It says whoever calls on the name of the Savior will be saved. No, that's not what it says. It says whoever calls on the name of the Lord. And you, you need to leave Egypt and you need to leave your gods back there. Whatever they are. Money, power, Praise, affirmation, your brilliance. What does God want me, stupid? No, because God's smarter than you are, stupid. Now look at, in Pharaoh's case, and it's very telling, by the way, friends, because I could be honest, I could stop right here and I think every one of us could go lick wounds for a moment, preferably our own. But let me just say in this, that he says, look at, Get away from my people. Now notice in this Pharaoh saying, look at uncle, uncle. Now understand, everyone else, remember, they're going, we all dead. We all dead. If you don't let the people, we're all dead. And, and Pharaoh's like, yeah, 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 shut up. You're still my people. What Pharaoh doesn't know is that his people are leaving by the droves to go and follow the, the Israelis. He doesn't even know it. And that becomes the problem with whatever you think is yours. And whatever you think you're holding on to that's yours is going to be temporary. Think about it. Your looks, honey, look at, no matter how beautiful you are right now, let me just warn you, sooner or later, it's just going to surrender to gravity. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to be your friend. 
Even your brilliance. Smart people aren't as smart when they get older. They talk less so you don't know it. If they are smart. And the reason I say that is, think about it. Everything you hold on to that you could call my is going to be temporary. Except one thing. And it's the one thing you rob yourself from. Please hear me. If you are willing to let everything be called his, then one thing becomes yours. And you know what that is? Revelation 21.7 says, He who overcomes will inherit all things and I will be his God. You see, when I'm willing to let everything else be handed over, God becomes my God. Jesus becomes my Lord. Not just Lord. Pharaoh will never call the Lord his Lord. He will only be the Lord. Now, it doesn't say that every knee will will confess. That's even weirder. But every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is their Lord. What it says is Jesus Christ is Lord. Satan is going to confess Jesus is the boss. But he will not confess that Jesus is his boss. Like Pharaoh, there will be this confession, you're right, you win. Unfortunately, I lose. But that does not mean I'm willing to surrender to you. And there are people out there, no matter how much you share Jesus with them, they will even happily take Jesus to save them from hell. But surrender their lives to him? That takes faith. The question isn't about the people out there that are wearing shirts that say 666, I love satin, because they can't spell. The question is, what about here? If Jesus were to walk in this church, would we follow him? If he told us to go to the place we don't want to go, at a time we wouldn't want to go, would we go? If it were scary, if it were humiliating, humbling, if it were sacrificial, would we go? Because if not, We're liars. Because we sing Jesus is Lord. We tell other people we believe Jesus is Lord. We quote the scriptures that Jesus is Lord. But we're not willing to make him our Lord. And you know what's so sad? At the end, we're going to end up like Pharaoh if we're like that. Which is that we'll even lose our own life because whoever loves his life will lose it. And where are you at? What's your that you're not willing to surrender to God? Look in. He wants it all. And you know what? He's the only one who can do anything good with it. Rise and go up from among my people both you and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. And Isaiah 43, 1, this is what God says. Listen to what he says about this nation. He would say the same of you. But now says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, don't be afraid. I have redeemed you. I've called you by your name. Listen, this is the word of God here. You are When God speaks, what God wants is to call you His. Do you imagine if you went to God and you wanted to pray and God says, no, 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 this is me time. Imagine. Sorry. This is my space in heaven. Don't come here. My space. Thursday night, man's night. Me and a few, me and Gabe and Michael, we're going to go bowling. Just leave, us, leave us alone. Could you imagine? And the reason I say that is, is that the only thing God wants that he can call mine, God speaking, is you. Verse 32. 
Okay, you can have your flocks, your herds. Remember, we tried to play compromise games. You didn't say so. And then he says, as you have, gone, it says, and, as you have said, be gone. Notice in verse 32, he says, and bless me also. Do you find that a strange statement? Do you remember the last time somebody said, bless me? Do you know in Scripture, there's only really four occasions where someone says, bless me? Literally say, bless me? The first of them, if you remember, is the situation with Jacob and his brother in the kind of whole thing where his dad's blind and he's like, give me the blessing, bless me. And he says, like, bless me, dad. And he, Jacob already got it. And that was the first of them. Then there was the second one, the one right before this. And the one right before this, if you remember, was when Jacob spends all night wrestling. Do you remember that? And at the end of it all, finds himself at the feet of the one he's wrestling with. And he says, I'm not letting you go unless you bless me. And I want to remind you that culturally... To call, to demand, or to ask a blessing of another individual, traditionally, is a point of surrender. Today we tap the matter, we cry out whatever defeat. When two guys are wrestling, the moment one guy gets them in, and they have these things called submission holds. Those of you are familiar with that, a submission hold is where you do something that's so painful, the other guy has to slap the mat three times, and if he slaps the mat three times, that's his way of saying, I surrender. Those days, the idea of it is, if I'm fighting with Dash, and Dash gets the better of me, I say, bless me. What that means is, is that I submit to the point that you win, you've won this one, and because you've won this one, please bless me, so I know you're not going to try to come out and settle any debts later, is the idea. And it's interesting that that's... Now understand, that's when God says, now you won, boy. That's what he says to Jacob, because he wrestled with God. How did he win? He won by surrendering, and never missed that. In God's economy, the way that someone wins is by surrendering. The more you win, the more you surrender. That's just that simple. Absolute victory is absolute surrender. That's the way that works. Here, isn't it interesting? Pharaoh was turning to Moses, and he says, bless me. And I can't help but think... The last time this happened, it looks the same. By the way, the last time that someone says, bless me for what it's worth, you can play with it yourself. It's First Chronicles 4.10, and that's what some call the prayer of Jabez. Yabez. Nonetheless, he says, bless me also. We don't read that Pharaoh does, but the idea is, please bless me, you're, you win. The Egyptians then urged the people as well, get them out of here. Now look at what it says in verse 34. The people took their dough before it was 11, their kneading bowls bound up on their clothes and their shoulders. This is now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. God had already said, go to the people. And as you go to the people, ask the Egyptians. And imagine, these are the people who used to beat you. And now you're going to knock at their door and say, can I have your gold stuff? But I remind you, the gold stuff, those of you who are here for it, was the stuff used in their idolatry practices, their idolatrous practices. So these people aren't going to be worshiping those things anymore because God has already taken them all down. So they're getting all of this stuff now along with clothing. And it says then, the Lord had given them favor in the sight of the Egyptians for what they requested. And now with that, for what it's worth then, now we have verse 37. Now, Suzanne, could you flash that, if you um, cancel that map? Or have we forgotten about that? I mean, in, in, thank you. And it says here, by the way, notice in verse 37, the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot. And some of you would go, well, where is Sukkot? And that's a great question. It's such a great question, nobody really knows. And the reason is Sukkot, in its simplest sense, means tents or temporary dwellings. That's what a Sukkot is. And so it all depends on where people are looking at. So um, if you look at this, they're in Goshen. That's up in this area here. And so there is, if you were actually to look at different maps, it's either here, 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 or down here. No one's really sure. All they know is that they travel. Now listen, it's really a pit stop. They're only going to be here for about a chapter. By the middle of the next chapter, they're on their way to the place where they're going to spend a good portion of time. Does anyone know where their main location is before they get to Israel? It's Mount Sinai. That's the place where they're going to get the law, where Moses is going to go up, where they're going to dance around the calf. There's a lot that's going to happen there. And that will happen basically starting in the next chapter. Now, from there, they'll wind up at the shores, by the way, looking in at Israel. By the way, for what it's worth, so you know, Israel is sort of starts right here and kind of comes up like this. You can almost see that. Can you almost see that line right there? This line right here, this is the Dead Sea traveling this way. So this is the southern tip of Israel. So they're going to come around this way, come through the Red Sea, as you see, ultimately, and come around this way and look at this spot, because it'll be right about here that they'll look in and say, no, we won't go. And then they'll come back and there'll be a whole lot of kind of bad deal that happens where they wander around the wilderness. So I'm giving you sort of a rough idea that on the south, of course, is Egypt. All of this is Egypt. This is the Nile Delta. So this is Egypt here as well. Here's our Saudi Arabia. Uh, as well. So it kind of gives you an idea 
where we're at for those of you who need it. Now, the reason I say all of that is, is that the people journey, but notice what it says in verse 37 and 38. If you're kind of getting a mental picture of how many people are leaving. It says in verse 37, the children of Israel journeyed from Ramsey to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. Now, God has a specific term for people, and he has a specific term for man. This is the term for man, like as in male. So let's just say, let's just do a little bit of math. From history, the traditional amount of children, for what it's worth, that an Israeli had was five. Now, I mean, remember, the one family we have focused on has 13 kids we're well aware of. That's the 12 sons of Israel and a daughter named Dinah. So go with five for a moment. And let's just say that of the 600,000, let's just even go low and say 400,000 of them are married. Now you start doing the math. You're running somewhere right at about two, I mean comfortably, very safely, about two million people. Now think about two million people leaving any place. Nonetheless, some places devastated as Egypt has been that's going to really leave things a little different, don't you think? Think about the complaints of how people experienced when the Olympics happened and on the West End people didn't come. And on average, we were talking about somewhere about forty to 60,000 people during the course of a day, and you're talking about 2 million people missing out of an area. But notice, by the way, and it's easy to miss in verse 38, what it says. A mixed multitude went up with them, and what's the next word after that? Okay, look at it with me. This should be easy. A mixed multitude went up with them also. What does that mean? On top of that many people, a mixed multitude came. Does that make sense? So we've got about 2 million Israelis that left. And what's a mixed multitude? That means that Egyptians left too. But notice it doesn't say a mixed scattered few. It says a mixed multitude. And multitude means lots of people. It means lots and lots of Egyptians went with the two million plus Israelis. Are you with me on that? And I remind you, Pharaoh says, get your people away from my people. And God says, you have no idea, because if I, you know, as God's like, if I could have my way completely, you'd have no people. And now we have a bunch of, of Egyptians as well that have left with them, with a lot of livestock, great flocks and herds. Why is that important? What this means is that they left rich in the sight of both sides. In the sight of the earth, that's stuff. In the sight of heaven, that's people. And this is in verse 39. They baked unleavened cakes for the dough brought out, to, um, out of Egypt. Why? Because it was unleavened. Now, again, I remind you, in the sight of the Father is the Son. Now, this particular sacrifice, this thing, this feast, is going to take place for at least the next 1,400 years as God had told them they were going to need to. And the bread always had to be unleavened. And that was flatbread. No leaven. And the reason is, you got it, you made it, you were out. I want to remind you, it's that feast that Jesus is at when he's sitting with his disciples and he broke it and he said, take this and eat. This is my body broken for you. That's why we don't use big leavened bread when we do the communion. Because communion, when Jesus started that, the bread he used was unleavened. So we thought we might as well do the same. That makes sense, doesn't it? Unleavened because it wasn't supposed to be that which had death in it yet. Now, And then, of course, after that, what did Jesus say? Then he said to all of his disciples, okay, you guys all come over to this side of the table for a portrait. Just kidding. Anyway, so (laughs) in this, though, it tells us that the people left with this. They already had their kneading bowls on their shoulders, so it seemed like they were somewhat ready to go. But it says, notice, that they hadn't packed provisions. And what does that mean? That though they were somehow supposed to be moving in faith, they weren't really moving with the faith they could have. I heard a story once about, uh, in the Midwest of America about a time when there was a terrible drought. As there was a terrible drought, the church took it upon himself, a specific church, to start praying for rain in an area where everybody was farmers. And he, and he had just spoken on a Sunday, this particular preacher, about faith, how important faith is to trust in God and trust that God moves. So he kind of he's kind of one of those sort of portly guys with dark skin, likes to scream and with lots of vim and vigor. And he kind of came in and the, the, the church says that because things were desperate, all of these farmers and everyone had gone in to pray. And he kind of looked and he said, so we're praying for rain, right? And he says, so where's your faith? And they all kind of looked down and he's like, well, and they're like, well, we're here. Isn't that enough? Isn't that faith? I mean, we're here. And he looked at me and says, where's your umbrellas? See, the whole point was if they were really praying for faith, You'd have thought they would have done something. You know, wear your wellies. If you ain't wearing your wellies, you're really thinking it's going to come. 
And it's the reason I say that is, oh, they made have packed something on their shoulder, so they packed a kneading bowl. But the bottom line is, is if you think you're leaving on a trip and you don't know where you're going, a couple sandwiches might be nice to have in a knapsack. You know what I'm saying? And the reason I say that is, listen, some of you, it's like, look, I'm going to come to Jesus and he's going to change my life. And I'm just going to sit here and wait. Well, like, there are going to be choices. Choices that are going to be made to prove how much faith you have or don't have. And then it's like, look, are you even preparing for that? Are you preparing for God to make a change in you? Where you're like, you know what, to be honest, I'm going to fake it. I'm going to lie to myself so much that I can actually, if I can convince myself, I could effectively lie to everyone else and actually be telling them the truth because I've lied to myself. So I believe it. So I'm telling everyone else the truth. Isn't that weird how that works? But we do that. And then it's like, and I'm going to tell everyone else, I want to change. I really want to change. I want to be a person where I have no area of my life God would say, that needs, that's big, that needs to change. But I'm going to tell them, I really want to change, but in the end of it all, I really have no interest in anything changing because I'm kind of happy with where I'm at. It's a little bit of bondage and a little bit of hallelujah. seems like it's good enough for me. But then you have no idea what it's really like to be completely free to walk in the Lord like he intended. Man, you are ripping yourself off. You're going, well, you know what? I'm freer than what? The guy that's in prison? That's, you know, haven't you had that when you're sharing Jesus? I'm nicer than what? Than Saddam Hussein? Don't hurt your shoulder patting yourself on the back. But God's looking for perfection. So in this, they're like, look it. But they hadn't even prepared provisions. So with that in mind, what happens? And by the way, can I just remind you, that will be the issue for the next 40 years? Think about it. Every time the people complain, it isn't that it's too hot. Here's the water. Where's the food? I miss leeks. I miss garlic. I miss meat. Where's my pheasant? And in the end of it all, God's like, you could have packed some. Now, with all of that said, what will happen? God says, look, I want this as a solid but burns. Let's, let's bring this around to close. A couple things here as he starts talking about the sacrifice of it, and then we'll bring this to prayer. And verse 43 says, now this is an ordinance. In other words, God says, this is our standard from this point on. And here it is. Notice the words he uses. In verse 43, he uses the word stranger. In verse 48, he uses the word uh, foreigner. And then he uses the word stranger in verse 48. Now, and in between, he uses the word servant. God assumes that outsiders are going to want to take part of this celebration. I want to remind you, a mixed multitude came with you. So when God's speaking to the Israelis, it is like immediate. Listen. It's immediate that there are people on the outside that want to be a part of this. It is immediate. You may not even recognize it, but they're walking with you right now. They gave you their stuff and then decided to come with you. And God says, so look at here's the deal. I play for keeps. And because I play for keeps, I don't want you playing a game with me. I don't want you playing this like I'm going to be good for you today, but on Tuesday, it's somebody else. And, it's, and listen, and if God were to have his way, if he could speak flat out to us today, he'd say, stop playing the game as if the world's for fun and I'm for saving. I'm the Lord. Stop looking at the world for, 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 for fulfillment. can't even say the word. And yet, I'm the one that's supposed to save your life. Do you think I saved you just so you could go to heaven? I mean, if God only saved you and you so you could go to heaven and now you could just go out and experience all the world has because you can't get that in heaven, the best thing God could do right now, can I just dare say it, is kill you. If, if he died just so you could go to heaven, he might as well, then why waste any time, man? You just, amen, boom, you drop dead. God's like, well, I might as well take you home. He died to be with you. And because he died to be with you, don't rob him of that because you're still calling something mine this is my time. This is my, my life. This is my timetable. This is what I can handle. Hand it to the Lord. And when God says, look at, I want to make right changes in your life so that every area of your life lines up with me, and you say, I don't know how if I can handle that. God says, look, if you hand it to me, how could you not handle it? I'm going to handle it for you. The Lord says, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. Now, at that moment, if that's all God said, that means that the Egyptians will never be a part of this. Are you aware of that? But notice what he says. Every man's servant is bought for money. When you circumcise him, then he can eat it. But wait a minute. Circumcision actually made you, in essence, a Jewish person in the sight of God. That was the, that was the sign of the covenant. And that tells me two things, by the way. First is, 
If the Israelis were to have someone as a servant, they need to become a part of the family. They're not just going to be a part of property like the rest of the world looked at a servant. And the second is, you're a permanent member of the family now. In other words, God says, look, if you're going to have somebody and they're going to live in your house for the rest of your life to serve you because that's what happened, like the Egyptians would have done in a situation like this, he says, adopt them. Then. Adopt them as a member of your family. Circumcise them. They're a part of your family. And from this point on, they're as good as Israeli as far as I'm concerned. And that's what God will say here in a moment. And I love this. God has never intended for his people to be so exclusive that we won't invite people in, but we have to invite them in through the gate of God's covenant. Every man's servant is bought at a price. A sojourner and a hired servant, verse 45, shall not eat it. Why? Because they're temporary. They're going to zip in. They're going to zip out. And he's like, look it. I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for people that are going to be permanently part of this family. Keep it in your house. Don't go from place to place like you're some form of used salesman. This is supposed to be a family thing. And listen, God says, I want families. That's what I want. And I want to be the Lord of this family. I don't want this to be an institution and a business. I don't want pastors to be CEOs. What I want is I want families. And I want to be the Lord of the family. And I want you to recognize there it's a lamb and it's your lamb with no broken bones that's perfect and in his prime because in the sight of the Father is his Son. And as in the sight of his Father is his Son, Jesus, the Lamb of God, needs to be your lamb. Tempted in every way, yet without sin, so he's the perfect sacrifice, and yet not a single bone broken, just as Psalm 34 had promised. And with that then, he was the perfect lamb sacrifice. Christ, our Passover. Listen to what it says, by the way, just so you know. This is exactly what's been said. It says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Listen, let us purge out the old leaven, that you may become a new lump, for truly you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Now, with that in mind, you go to the last couple verses. It says this then, verse 47, All the congregation shall eat of it. Man, this is not for them. This is for you. Know that. This isn't for pastors. This isn't for leadership. This is for every person that claims, claims God. This is because he has to be your lamb. Now, listen. If a pastor loves Jesus, that doesn't mean you're going to. If a, if a church is in love with Jesus, that doesn't mean you are. If somebody claims Christ, your husband, your wife, your father, your mother, your children claim Christ, that doesn't mean you will. He has to be yours. God is not into group reservations. He doesn't just look and go, all right, we're going to get all the Rogers over there and all of the Northern Irish over here and we're going to get the, you know, the Jamaicans over here so they can make some noise. We're going to get, I mean, this is what God's doing because he doesn't say, I call my sheep by group. Aren't you thankful? At the end of the book of Revelation, God says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, can you imagine either you're in a giant line, a huge queue, you're number 6,432, and you, when you get to you can finally wipe off, let's get some more puffs, next person. And how lame would that be? Or God, because he's bigger than our math, could have a one-on-one with you for the rest of eternity, and that's what he wants. And that's why he says, they'll be my people, but I'll be their God. Individually, they're God. That's what God's always wanted. That's the one thing he's always wanted. So when a stranger dwells with you and he wants to keep the Passover, let the males be circumcised. Let him come near. And notice what it says in verse 48. He shall be as a native of the land. He's not going to be a second-class citizen. He's not going to be. In other words, God says, I want this to be something so powerful. Listen, 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 listen. You should be celebrating freedom in such a way that other people want to be a part of it. And in celebrating that freedom, it should be something that someone says, I'm not a part of this right now. How can I be? I says, God wants to cut open your heart. And in cutting open your heart, he wants to live there. And he did that at the cross. And if you accept the gift of Jesus Christ as his death, as your Savior, as his resurrection, as your Lord, then he is willing to save you and make you a native of heaven. So your citizenship will be there now. Notice it says in verse 49, One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did so, just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. It came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. Last thing, and we pray. Notice it doesn't say he brought them out, again, by their families. Because once he actually becomes the Lord of your family, your family becomes an army. And from that point on... You will be offensive. 
or defensive. Dare I say, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, be offensive. Don't be just rude. Be offensive. Be on the offense. Take it to the court. Take it to the paint. Bring it in. Or you're no threat. But look in. People will talk about spiritual warfare. You know, it's sort of like they just, they, my milk was bad. I opened up my milk, it was bad spiritual warfare. You know, and I'm, and I'm dairy, I'm lactose intolerant. Why are you pouring the milk in the first place? And I went in this, I was going to get, we went to get, it was Landon and David and I, and we went to get tea yesterday because I hate, personally hate coffee. And the place was closed. Spiritual warfare there. <laughs> Satan wants me to have no tea. No tea. Really? Let me tell you spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is an attitude in your heart where what the enemy would love is for you to have no joy, no peace, no hope, and no focus. And if he can convince you, if he can't convince you there's no hell, he can just convince you there's no hurry. There's no hurry to get your life right. Come on, just live this way. Don't change anything. Just be who you are and God's just going to accept you because he's just one big comfortable job of the hut that wants to hug you and love you and give you mercy and grace. Who cares? Don't look at that bloody cross. That's offensive. And you know, and don't tell people about that. That should offend them because that'll tell them they're sinners and they need a savior. Hello. So, you know, and, and so here you are. It's like, you know, you're a doctor and you're going to go in a place where everyone's dying and all they need is a shot of penicillin, but don't bring any needles because after all, that's going to scare people and nobody wants that. And you know what? We do that. And in the end of it all, God just so doesn't want that. And, if, and, and so what happens? Do you see why the enemy goes after families? Because that's where the armies are. Imagine if he can actually walk into a barracks, the enemy barracks, and say, you guys, listen, and you dress up like a sergeant and say, soldiers, today I'm giving you the day off. Nap out. No battles. Ignore those sounds out there. It's training. It's not real bombs. Don't worry about the land that's being lost. Go and relax. You deserve it. Those fatigues, they're supposed to be just to make you look good so you can, you know, get a date when you get to shore. So just relax. Talk about battles you've never fought. You know, read about stories and then talk about how cool it is that other people fought battles and then everybody relax and get fat. I'm going to go and take some more land. And that's what happens. I mean, I just don't want to offend anyone. Yeah, you know, the good news is you're really not offending Satan, but you are offending Jesus. And I don't want to do that. I'm not talking about be obnoxious unless the Lord calls you to be. I'm saying be real. If Jesus is the center of your universe, you will probably shine him. You will reflect him anytime you're facing him. And if you are celebrating that freedom... Someone's going to ask, hey, I'm a foreigner. I'm not really part of that, am I? And you would say, well, I don't want to offend them by telling them the truth. But say, you know what? You are on the outside. But let me tell you, the gate's Jesus Christ and you can come in. Oh, that Jesus stuff. You're going to bring that Jesus stuff. Yes, I am. And you are welcome to be a part of the freedom. But that freedom comes in Jesus because it's where the Spirit of the Lord is. There is freedom. And you can't have the Spirit of the Lord without Jesus. But the moment you say yes to him, it's an installment he places in you from this point forward. What are you going to do? You think freedom something esoteric? It's the freedom to say no, and it's the freedom to serve. So as we go to prayer, beloved, can I just ask you, as we go to prayer, mine, is there a mine? Are you like one of those seagulls in Nemo? You know, mine, 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 mine. Is that where you're at? This is my life. This is my time. This is my, God. oh Lord, I don't, I know this, I know this isn't right with you. I know this isn't right, but this is mine. God goes, of course it's yours, because it wouldn't be mine if it was like this. Your life wouldn't be this if it was mine. It would be better. You're scared? Good. Be brave enough to go over your fear to what's right. Because today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. He wants it all. And dare I say, he gave it all. And with that, God's in the business of transforming. And he'd love to transform all of you. So you could say, Jesus is mine. And he could say, your name, Daniel, Janae, Francis, Peter. 
is mine. Will you pray with me? Lord, I just want to thank you for this beautiful text. I want to thank you, God, that you want... I mean, it's ridiculous to think. It's ridiculous to think that you would want to call us yours. Not because I know them well, because I know me well. And I'm not trying to be falsely humble, Lord. You know it. I know the filthy, rotten person I am outside of you. I know that in me that's in my flesh, nothing good dwells. But I also know, Jesus, that you so loved me even in all of that, when I was still your enemy and dead in my trespasses and sin. Jesus, you died on the cross so that all of it could be paid for and you could be my redeemer. And if you've redeemed me, then you've bought me. And if you've bought me, I'm yours. The question is whether or not I'm willing to admit it. So I'm not just asking for you to bless me to sort of admit somehow your superiority. I don't want you just to be Lord. You're going to be Lord whether I accept it or not. But I want you to be my Lord. And that means if you send me to the, to the fire of the stands of wherever, keep me and, and plant me or whatever you want to do, God, I just want to say that you are my Lord. And when you say goes, and I don't want to play the games of pretending like I don't hear you when you do speak. I want to be honest, God, to say that without you, I'm nothing. I desperately need you. And I know you have no problem communicating with me. So I pray today for every believer in this room, myself included, that the mind becomes yours like it's supposed to, so that you could become ours like you want to. And in that, Lord, if there's anything we are fighting you on right now, maybe we've numbed our hearts to it. We've deafened our ears to it. Circumcise our hearts. Open our ears and eyes. And give us a fresh conviction in that area. That today we could walk out of here right. And if you've confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but perhaps today you'd like to recommit in light of that. Not because you're going to get resaved. God saved you the moment. He redeemed you the moment you said yes to him. But just because in your own heart you want to be able to say, yes, God, you know what? Today I, I, I realize that I'm still holding out on you and, I, and you don't deserve that. Or if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, but today his Holy Spirit has made clear to you that you need to say yes to the gift of Jesus at the cross. His death is a punishment for your guilt, but also then his resurrection so that you could declare him Lord. I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end of it all, I'm going to say, Jesus be my Lord. Jesus be my Savior. I am yours. And I ask you to repeat after me and then give me a big amen. Nothing quiet, nothing wimpy. Beginning part, I ask you to listen so you know what you're signing up for. Father in heaven, I come to you not perfect in my own activities or thoughts or even as a good person. But I come to you without the gift of Jesus as a completely gift, a guilty person that you created to be with. And in that, God, I just pray right now that as I come to you, I, I, I beg your mercy and grace that I don't deserve, but that's why you call it grace. That though I deserve hell, you offer me heaven as a gift that you paid for. So I, I just pray right now, Lord, that you would forgive me of all of my wrong and remove from me the desire to further commit such things, think such things, feel such things, want such things. And today, Lord God, change me. I may not even have the strength or the courage to just openly give you my life, but I want to give you permission to come and get it even if I don't. Because I don't want this to be my life. I want this to be your life. I want you to be my God, my Lord. And so with that, I just give you right to invade and to take as you see fit. I do believe Jesus died for me at the cross so that all my guilt could be punished. 
I do believe he literally died just as your scripture said, was literally buried and then literally rose again on three days just like your scripture said. And then in that, he has the right to be my Lord as well as my Savior. As he's redeemed me and purchased me by his blood, I say yes to him as my Lord. So, Jesus, be my Savior. Your turn. Jesus, be my Lord. My Lord. Because I am yours. Completely I am yours. So have me. I surrender. My life. My love. My all. Jesus, in your name. Amen.